Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare and Physicians for a National Health Plan, Kentucky. I'm Mark McKinley. I'm a volunteer with the group, and we're proud to be a partner with Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5. And with us, uh, as we have been for about the past year, is Dr. Mike Flynn and Dr. Eugene Shively with their guest. So without further ado, uh, well, let me just say the views and opinions expressed on single payer radio are those of the speakers and not the station. So Mike? Yes, uh, let me also make that same disclaimer that any comments that I make here uh, do not in any way reflect the, the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. Uh, Gene, you, you want to do your your disclaimer as well. <laughs> yeah, any comments that I make are <laughs> are my own. They don't represent the uh, Taylor Regional Hospital in Campbellsville, Kentucky, nor the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. All right. Well, our topic today is head and neck cancer and tobacco, and we're going to discuss these uh, uh, separately and together. And we are fortunate in that we have a guest expert uh, to join us today, uh, Jeff Bumpus. Uh, Jeff is, um, I guess, primarily a head and neck surgeon. I've known Jeff, Jeff for years, um, back to the days when he was a medical student here. It was really scary. Um, he is an otolaryngologist uh, and a chairman of the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Louisville. And Jeff, we are grateful that you're willing to spend some time with us and, and help us work our way through some of these issues. Uh, as we've done in the past with um, our Zoom guests, we generally give you an opportunity uh, to make whatever comments you'd like to make about uh, either tobacco, head and neck cancer together or separately. And after you're, you're finished with that, then we'll, we'll begin with the conversation. Okay. First of all, I'd, I'd really like to thank, uh, um, Dr. Mike Flynn, Dr. Gene Shively. I've known both of you guys for a long time and, uh, appreciate your mentorship over the years and, uh, and your friendship always, uh, uh, you know, I am chair of the Department of Laryngology, and I guess my uh, disclaimer, too, is these represent my views and not the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Laryngology at the University of Louisville. That notwithstanding, head and neck cancer is still a big problem in Kentucky uh, and a big problem with younger folks, you know, and while we've seen a decline in smoking and tobacco related malignancies really across the country, that decline has occurred at, uh, at not a great as great a pace in Kentucky, and uh, fearfully with uh, tobacco use uh, and tobacco use taking on new forms uh, such as vaping and things like that, uh, it, it's going to be a continued concern. I think the only other thing I would say in introduction, Mike, is that uh, kind of on a collision course with that is uh, we now have oropharyngeal cancer, so those are cancers of the tonsil in the base of tongue region that are related to human papillomavirus. And Kentucky is particularly a ground where we can see that the collision of smoking uh, or tobacco use and the papillomavirus related cancers. 
And we know that people who have a greater than 10 pack year smoking history, that's like one pack per day uh, for 10 years, they don't fare as well, even if they do have a papillomavirus related cancer. Uh, so Kentucky kind of remains uh, in, in the, what I would call yellow zone to danger zone with regards to head and neck cancers. Uh, Gene, you want to fire the first shot across Jeff's bow? Okay. Well, <laughs> what about the uh, HPV uh, vaccination? We hear a lot about that. I'm not sure how many people are getting it, but uh, does it prevent head and neck cancer as it does uh, uh, cervical cancer? Can yeah, you hear so, me? You know, Gene, I think that's a, that's a great yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you. I, I think it's a real important point. And, you know, virtually every state in the United States, New York was the first one who actually uh, also insisted that the HPV vaccine be covered by insurance companies, even for boys and adolescents. The current uh, kind of guidelines are for vaccination of individuals under 40 years of age. And there are even some special considerations for folks up to 50 years of age. About 80% of tonsil and base of tongue cancers now are HPV related. And it's the, the type six and type 18 of that virus that tends to form the cancers. Uh, this is also a virus that is related to cervical cancer and anal cancer. So it's, uh, you know, it's certainly disease, you know, in this year of a pandemic, we really are recognizing the importance of vaccinations and viral disease in, in human beings. Uh, but this is a highly preventable cancer if we get our children uh, and adolescents vaccinated. Uh, How are we doing in the state of Kentucky with vaccinating our children and adolescents and adults? Well, you know, as, as you, it might not be a surprise to you. It is, we do a pretty good job in urban centers and in places that have... Uh, you know, where people have good access. Um, if you look at areas, uh, more disenfranchised areas like the West End of Louisville and look at rural communities, they may not have gotten as much information nor may they have had uh, as much access. I think it really depends a lot on an active physician community to kind of get that word out. Kentucky Cancer Program, as well as American Cancer Society have really tried to uh, get that message across and to get the vaccine message across in, in a big way. But but the, the larger cities tend to fare better with regards to this than uh, rural communities and poorer communities. Can, can you also comment what role alcohol plays in uh, head and neck cancer? Yeah, you know, alcohol is, uh, is, been, is probably a weak carcinogen by itself but it is a co-carcinogen. So people who uh, use tobacco products and alcohol together, uh, it, it really creates a, a perfect storm. You know, in some ways alcohol uh, strips the, the mucus off of the mucous membranes and that probably allows the tobacco's uh, carcinogens to have uh, greater contact with the tissues. It also can increase the solubility of some of the things like the uh, aromatic hydrocarbons that are in tobacco. So it really facilitates the cancer. It probably in and of itself, although it has its other health risks, doesn't cause the cancer by itself, but it certainly uh, makes tobacco a much more potent carcinogen. Uh, Jeff, let, let's drop Go back. Ahead. 
through some basics here. Uh, majority of our listeners are not don't have a medical background, and when we yeah. talk about head and neck cancer, um, that's it's there's a lot of different uh, places where you can have cancer and some different types of cancer. So could you? kind of set the table uh, in the beginning so that we have a sense sure. so the listeners have a sense of when you talk about head and neck cancer you know what what are some of the different possibilities and what are what what ones are somewhat more common than others? sure you know for the most part you know the yeah the ones we're thinking about the most part are cancers that it can exist of the mouth uh, and the tongue and uh, all those parts and then on further down obviously the throat so the voice box and the swallow upper swallowing parts of the throat uh common areas that we see with these tobacco related cancers in kentucky uh, are mouth cancers that occur on the tongue and floor of the mouth and then also cancers of the voice box and larynx for those uh, using smokeless tobacco, obviously the oral cavity cancers. So the people who dip snuff and chew tobacco getting cancers on their gums uh, or getting cancers in the floor of the mouth where the, where the plug of tobacco is sitting uh, are the areas that are at highest risk. Um, you know, and then other kind of less common cancers, but cancers of concerns that we see as head and neck cancer surgeons are skin cancers that occur in the head and neck and then thyroid cancers, which are uh, obviously arise out of our thyroid gland. I remember when I was a medical student being impressed with how much anatomy is packed into the head and neck, which represents about 10% of the body mass. There's a ton of anatomy, both uh, uh, physical anatomy and functional anatomy. I mean, so, and there's a lot of places where you can get, you can get cancer. Uh, you mentioned vaping a bit earlier. Uh, I was kind of curious. Uh, in, this is in the same sort of vein as some of Gene's questions, but what's the mechanism of vaping as opposed to? Because uh, they're not. That's not a tobacco product. I don't. Is it? Or unless I'm. It doesn't have to be. So yeah. that's why it's really a mixed bag. You know, some of these are are just, if you will, herbal uh, uh, kind of uh, mixtures and things like that. So not all of them contain tobacco, although some do. Some contain nicotine and some don't. So uh, you know, really not understanding the role of it. It is hard to know, but the one thing that has been a concern about it is there with some of the formulations, there are high, a high doses of calf, uh, of uh, nicotine. And the second thing is, is there can be high doses of these aromatic hydrocarbons in some of these vaping solutions. So, so although we don't have a long-term amount of history with them, like we do cigarettes and chewing tobacco and things like that, there are certainly substances in some of these commonly vaped uh, 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 concoctions that are not good, uh, you know, that kind of replicate what happens with, uh, with smoking. All right. Now, how, how about ma marijuana? Before we, uh, before we got started here, Mark and I were talking about uh, going out to Colorado. And it's legal in Colorado. You can sure. go down to, we've got a place out in Crested Butte. There's a little green store down on the main <laughs> drag where you can, you can go in, they, they check your license and I guess they put you on some sort of database and then they let you in the door and, 
you can you can chew it, you can smoke it, you can eat it, and you can get some to put on your skin. So um, what's the relationship between cancer, head and neck cancer, lung cancer, and and a weed? Well, you know, that's a that's a much more mixed story. So and it, it probably has a little bit more to do to, with delivery. You know, if you're if you're smoking things and particularly if they're in paper carriers, uh, those paper carriers can also have chemicals, preservatives and and hydrocarbons. Marijuana itself is kind of, you know, there are proponents on both sides of that equation. There are folks who say that it actually is uh, has some cancer preventative principles. There are those who say it uh, could cause cancer. The only thing that I would say that's interesting in the in the medical literature is that marijuana use, particularly marijuana smoking, uh, there were some studies that were done by a really uh, pretty sharp late virologist who's at Johns Hopkins. She had been at Ohio State named Mark Gillison. And Dr. Gillison uh, demonstrated that HPV cancers were higher uh, or the, the potential of having HPV cancers were higher in people who were heavy marijuana users. Now, uh, you know, you kind of go back and look at that paper and say, what is a heavy marijuana user? And they were talking about someone who was, you know, smoking three joints or marijuana cigarettes kind of a day uh, or greater as, as kind of the heavy user sort of thing. You know, with the edibles and skint topical preparations and with CBD oil and all the variety of other things that are out there now, there's certainly not as strong an association there. So, uh, you know, I would say it's a mixed bag right now. No pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gene, you want to have another one? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I don't know if I can beat that one. <laughs> yeah, when I was a resident, we didn't have an ENT program, so the general surgery uh, residents ended up doing a lot of the head and neck cases and uh, I ended up doing a lot because some of the residents were interested in doing it but one of the things I think we need to emphasize is is, is how horrible some of these uh, cases are um, just the disability uh, the, the surgery uh, and combine it with radiation and chemo can you discuss just some of the uh, the problems these patients have and, and really how miserable yep. they can be. No, you're absolutely right, Gene. And I think, I think uh, Mike alluded to it a little bit. You know, there's always a lot going on in the head and neck. It's kind of the conduit between the brain and the rest of the body. So it's how we, you know, we're recognized by our face and our voice. Uh, we kind of interact with each other by being able to use a voice or hear. Uh, we uh, sustain ourselves by eating by mouth uh, for the most part, although that can be bypassed, obviously. But they me, and then we really treat or microwave instructions, and even by improved radiation or, or uh, creating combined therapy with radiation and chemotherapy. Uh, one of the big things that I see have been practiced almost on, going on 30 years now is the patients that are survivors that I continue to see are the late effects of treatment. You're right, especially 
late cancers and the treatment of the people. Uh, Jeff, we, we, we seem to we seem to be losing part, they, part they, they, they they can oftentimes become reclusive because they don't feel comfortable. Yes. Uh, we, can I you think, hear me now? Well, we, yeah, we were having some technical problems. Are you there, guys? For a while, yeah. Yes. I, yeah, I think that's better. Now. Is it a little better? Yeah. Uh, yes, I'm so, so sorry. We've, lo we've lost you again. We okay. would see a lot of the late effects of these cancers. And although we're better at restoring, any better? Yeah, yes. yeah. That, that seems to to be better yeah we 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 lost you for a while there and yet your your image is frozen up and um we were only getting snippets of what you were you were saying mike can you hear me now yeah i can with the effects of their cancer and and or the treatment of their cancer for a lifetime uh so it is it can be a very devastating cancer well, as you and I both know, when I started doing uh, head and neck surgery, which was way shortly after the assassination of Lincoln, um, we <laughs> we <laughs> we did we were doing this thing called a the you know commando procedure, which was a terribly destructive uh, undertaking with a tracheostomy and a, some face flap and a resection of the ascending ramus of the mandible and the the tonsil and then then I, I think you used to do your own flaps i'd have somebody like uh, some of the plastic folks come in and do some do some reconstruction right. and then these people got radiation and they had all kinds of complications they spent weeks in the hospital and they had a 25 percent uh you know, cure rate so uh Chemo radiation has changed a lot of that. Um, yes. Where where does the the sort of radical head and neck surgery fit into today's equation, where where most of these people that we used to operate on now are are being treated uh, in a in a, with a, in a non surgical way, initially anyway. Well, yeah, I think not to be over technical about it. I think oral cancer cancers are still treated quite a, quite often surgically, but obviously our reconstructive methods are improving and continue to prove almost uh, uh, on a monthly to yearly basis. But concomitant chemotherapy or the use of chemotherapy plus radiation therapy, we're doing it a lot more. And particularly for cancers of the voice box and cancers of the tonsil and base of tongue. And that's because we can preserve function and preserve swallowing in those folks, but it's not without effort and it, and it doesn't occur in every patient. So to say that it's a panacea and that we're perfect, uh, it, it's far from that, but you're right. We, we really perform less mutilating surgery than we did in the past. And I think that we also, when we do have to perform surgery, for example, if chemotherapy and radiation therapy did not work, um, we do have better reconstructive methods for putting people back together. Um, but, you know, the consequence of having a few more people survive from these cancers is we, we then have to kind of deal with uh, the, the late effects or how damaged some of them are after the treatment. And that's, that remains a challenge. Now um, I was impressed when um, one of your colleagues, uh, Kevin Potts came to a meeting that uh, 
that Nora Brzezinski and I used to run for the uh, Kentucky uh, Dental Association, and he showed us a video of a robotic tonsillectomy, which was yes. I just compared to the awful uh, activities of doing a commando <laughs> procedure. I mean, that was an elegant operation. And another yep. example of that was a, a nerve-sparing prostatectomy that I'd seen a videotape of as well. So um, it, explain a little bit of that to our listeners, again, who are not mostly sure. clinical and how, how, how uh, this really is an elegant way to deal with some of these difficult issues that then seems to me has a fraction of the morbidity of doing those bigger operations. Right. And you're exactly right, Mike. We're increasingly doing robotic surgery, particularly for tonsil and select uh, base of tongue cancers. And the the advantage of the robot is that we can do a a large surgery internally without doing the things we had to do in the past, like split the mandible in half and and kind of open uh, open the face like a, a book. Yeah. You know, we, you know, we had to do those procedures because that was the way we, we had to cut through a lot of normal tissue to actually. So the robot allows us to go through the mouth and arrive at the uh, tumor and the target and adequately visualize and manage it. So it's been a real important thing. Like everything, it's not for every tumor or every patient, uh, but for appropriately uh, uh, selected patients, it really does decrease the morbidity and it allows people to have better speech and swallowing function and to maintain their appearance. So I do think it's an advance that's here to stay. And we're actually, uh, interestingly, we're moving even to what are called single port technologies. So what that'll mean is we'll be able to use the robot further down the throat and it's even a smaller robot than we have currently. So the technology continues to improve. So I think we'll, we'll see more and more of this uh, in probably all kinds of cancer resections uh, going forward. Well, well, like further down the throat where? <laughs> well, like all the way to the vocal cords. So, oh, okay. you know, we yeah. basically the FDA, the current robotics in the head and neck are limited to the base of tongue and tonsil. That's what the right. FDA has approved the technology for. But this will allow you to go into the even into the trachea. Uh, so these single port technologies are, uh, are, are really pretty impressive. Oh, that's great. Gene, you, uh, you want to fire another round? Yeah. When I uh, went into practice, I was fortunate that, uh, Dr. Jim Ewing and then later his son <laughs> were practicing in Campbellsville. So we continued to, to do a lot of head and neck surgery. Dr. Ewing trained in Tampa and they really did a lot of surgery down there. So so I've been involved in this for quite a long time. And one of the things that really impressed me was that we had a lot of patients, particularly after they'd had radiation to get esophageal strictures. And I spent a lot of time uh, having to dilate those patients. And of course, the complications of dilatation and, and poor nutrition, having to put in G-tubes, et cetera. Right. And then, and then of course, the patients uh, with... Um, permanent tracheostomies and and what's still amazing to me is the patients who smoke through their tray yes <laughs> it says something about the power of addiction to tobacco correct um, do you all see still see a lot of the strictures of the esophagus 
Yeah, you know, there are two things, Gene, I think I have, like you, and I'm sure Mike, too, uh, done a lot of esophageal dilations over the years for people who've had radiation, and we still see them. Uh, you know, I, I think we see them a little bit to a lesser degree with the use of newer radiation techniques, but that hasn't made them go away entirely. You know, the other thing that we've kind of discovered is that radiation, and particularly the, the type of chemotherapy that's been used for this, can also affect the, the, uh, the upper esophageal sphincter muscle. So sometimes what we're doing is injecting that with Botox in addition to dilating the esophagus. And that, that seems to help some folks that have uh, required frequent dilations or haven't been uh, gotten as well as they thought they would with the dilation alone. So uh, over the last four to five years, I would say that's something that's emerged and may be actually helpful uh, for some of those folks. Uh, Jeff, uh, where does immunotherapy fit into all this? Uh, I'm I stayed on the IRB after retiring, and one of the things we've been noticing over the last couple of years is a lot of studies with this targeted therapy, where you have a you have a specific monoclonal antibody, and then combine that with a chemotherapy agent, and that that targets the 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 specific tumor. And then when the with the monoclonal antibody binding into the antigen, then the chemotherapy agent comes in, gets in a very, you know, it's a very impressive and and kills the cell. And there was a another study I looked at uh, the, in which they combined the monoclonal antibody with a radioisotope. So that the once, mm -hmm. the once the monoclonal antibody bind on the cell, then the radioisotope would, you know, sneaks in and kills the cell. I haven't really seen any studies dealing with head and neck cancers. Uh, is that right? I guess it's, I mean, either we're missing them or maybe it's just not a good option. In well, there are some neck. out there. So the first one and the only really FDA approved one that is out there right now in terms of targeted therapies uh, is cetuximab, which is a, a monoclonal antibody uh, against the epidermal growth factor receptor. And interestingly, that can be used primarily in treatment to help sensitize some cancers to radiation therapy. So we do that some, in, especially in people who can't tolerate the traditional chemotherapy, which can be very difficult on the kidneys and other organs. Uh, the thing that I think there are two things that are pretty exciting, though, one that's becoming more into the mainstream and one that's still experimental, but that we're fortunate enough to be involved with at the Brown Cancer Center. So the one that's in the mainstream and is actually performing better in recurrent cancers uh, than the old traditional chemotherapy cisplatinum uh, is uh, basically something called the immunotherapy. And there are, it's uh, the types of drugs are called PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors. And these are, these are drugs that help really ramp up your immune system, particularly your T lymphocytes. It ramps up your T lymphocytes uh, to really kind of make them angry against the cancer. And surprisingly, you know, if you took somebody who had a recurrent head and neck cancer after treatment, there really wasn't too much we could do for those folks. They didn't do well. They still haven't done well. But classic chemotherapy would give about a 12 to 15 percent response. And in some of these cases, the drug actually gives about a 30 percent rate of patients that respond. 
So that, that drug got people's attention and, and it's being used as a palliative treatment right now. So not a curative treatment, but I can tell you there are a lot of studies underway looking at that class of drugs to see where it could fit in earlier in the treatment of head and neck cancer. The other one is something called TILS therapy, which is tumor-induced lymphocyte therapy. And that's where we actually remove people's T lymphocytes and we actually have parts of their cancer. And in the laboratory, we train their T lymphocytes to fight that cancer better. It's kind of like going to T lymphocyte boot camp in a, in a surgeon's perspective. Uh, and, and then put those lymphocytes back in the patient to where they may be a little bit more in gear, you know, a little bit better trained to approach that cancer and get to that cancer. So, you know, I, I can tell you there there's mind boggling amount of things going on looking at approaches to these cancers. Yeah, I think I've seen a couple of those studies that dealt with lymphomas. I don't know that I've seen any right. that are specific for, for, for head and neck cancers. Uh, Gene? Uh, well, one of the things I want to bring up was secondary primaries. Uh, you know, people with head and neck cancers often develop cancer somewhere else. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, I think that's a that's a huge problem, uh, Gene. As you're well aware, it it you know the, particularly the people who have developed head and neck cancers related to smoking and drinking, and maybe to some degree with this papillomavirus as well. There are multiple areas in the mouth and throat that could have been affected by those carcinogens. So we may be very successful in treating the first cancer that presents, but anywhere from 12 to 20% of these patients, depending on uh, kind of where their cancer was originally, may go on to form other head and neck cancers or lung cancers. So, so we have to keep these folks under surveillance and, and kind of watch them. The group that's at the highest risk these second primary tumors are the people who continue to smoke and use alcohol, though. And most of these cancers are originating the lung? The vast majority of the second primaries are lung cancers. The esophagus and other head and neck sites uh, follow uh, kind of as distant seconds. Let's change horses a little bit and sort of kind of go back to the future and talk uh, and get your views about these uh, 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 the effectiveness of tobacco cessation or tobacco quitting programs. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm there. There, uh, there's seems to me that the the best way to cut down on people's use of tobacco is to make a make it more expensive. But the, aside from that, there's there's counseling and and uh, uh, medications. So can you kind of give us a a sense of your thoughts about how you know which one works the best, or where where would you put them in a the in in the you know in this area of of how because if you can improve somebody's long term survival, they reduce the risk of a second primary by not getting them to smoke, how, do, how does that, how, how well does that work? Well, you know, I, I think there are definitely programs that have shown effectiveness, both with uh, uh, behavioral therapy and with, with uh, medications, uh, including things like nicotine patches or, or uh, um, any that, that can be helpful. 
You know, one of the keys to this, though, is having the time to do it, Chandy, for patients. So, you know, more and more, the I, I serve as the chair of the Cancer Committee for Brown Cancer Center, and the American College of Surgeons and ACOS have they promoted survivorship in patients. And part of the survivorship is to make sure cancer centers and major health systems are trying to provide preventative services for patients. And I think this is a preventative service. This is just like vaccinating yourself against polio or something like that. Uh, we have to have uh, dedicated professionals that can spend time with these folks. One of the things, I guess, is kind of a bizarre lesson learned from the pandemic, though, is that a lot of Americans, rural or otherwise, are connected by the Internet, if by nothing else, as their iPhone. So using telehealth technologies to kind of help with this counseling and kind of keeping people accountable, you know, checking in on them, you know, making sure they're not smoking and 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 uh, kind of helping them through the issue and making sure they're compliant with any medications. I think that will be helpful. So I think that the, the pandemic and the use of telehealth has taught us something. I'm hopeful that that'll get more people on board with this. In my personal my personal experience, Mike, I, I have to say, has been far more disappointing than uh, than I'd like to admit. Um, I, I would say that, uh, that I've had probably about fewer than 10% of people stop smoking where, and I try to really emphasize how important it is, but I think how you do it, the amount of time we spend doing it and the resources for patients are what's going to lead to success here. Uh, well, let me make what I would probably consider a somewhat off the wall comment. And let me see if this is something you've had an experience with. Uh, you remember Rob Campbell? Rob. Oh yeah. Yeah. Rob was, uh, Rob is up and, uh, he, he, he's a director of a small psychiatric hospital, uh, focusing on addiction up in Columbus, Ohio. And he was on a, a month or so ago and he made, he, he, he made the connection, uh, it's kind of a three-part connection between addiction, uh, mental illness and smoking. And, you know, basically, he said almost most of the addicts that they deal with have got some degree, some mental illness. And he said he's hardly ever seen one that didn't smoke. Now, I, 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 this is probably not a fair question <laughs> for you as a head and neck surgeon. But uh, is this something you, you had an, a, any kind of observation or comments about that as a as a uh, um, uh, as an issue in dealing with uh, patients with head and neck cancer? Well, I, I really do. And I think, uh, you know, adequate access to mental health care is probably important. You know, people, uh, I, I don't know if they gravitate towards tobacco or tobacco and alcohol um, to treat underlying uh, situations, but it seems like there's probably a truism there, Mike. Uh, and we do know certain populations, for example, bipolar patients, have an increased incidence of head and neck cancer. And people with serious bipolar disease, a good many of them smoke and drink. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I do think there's a connection there and, and trying to kind of stave that off by, by making sure people are able to get their mental health needs met is part of this. Uh, Jim? Well, my, my experience in getting people to stop smoking has been dismal. I've been very disappointed. I made a lot of people mad, but I don't think I've uh, gotten too many people off cigarettes. <laughs> Maybe my approach has been wrong. In, in, in rural Kentucky, particularly, um, 
uh, when the family farm was dependent upon tobacco, um, that was just part of our culture. Uh, and everybody yep. smoked and everybody started smoking uh, when they were in high school, particularly the males, but uh, females uh, caught up with them, uh, with the males. And it seems like uh, it's very difficult to, uh, to reverse that. When, uh, when I first started in practice, uh, you know, uh, school uh, in August and September didn't start until you had your tobacco cut and uh, hung up. And then they would get down to uh, studying other things. Well, I think the best way to cut down on tobacco use is to make it so expensive that it really does take a bite out of somebody when they, when they have to, when they do a lot of it. So, uh, Jeff, let's uh, again switch horses a bit here and, and talk about the, uh, uh, the, the access to care and, and health coverage. As you know, we're, we're one of the reasons we're doing this is we've got uh, you know, some thoughts about uh, what kind of health care coverage we should have in this country compared to the 35 other first world countries that have some sort of universal health care. Uh, I I stopped being a head and neck surgeon about 10 years uh, uh, before I retired and it turned into an endocrine surgeon, which is an easier thing for, for uh, older surgeons to do. Uh, so where where does the um, the um, um, the for-profit health insurance or the private health insurance, the Medicare and the Medicaid, and the uninsured, where, where are they, what kind of a mix are you seeing today in the patients that walk in the door with, um, with head and neck cancer? Well, you know, I see a, a, see an admixture of both, you know, in tongue in cheek, we used to say this was a, this was a cancer that occurred in uh, people who uh, who were in smoky boardrooms and also people who lived under the bridge. Now that sounds very pejorative, and I surely don't mean it that way. But uh, but honestly, tobacco-related malignancies touch just about all society. And you know, one of the things that I, I've always felt fortunate being able to be at uh, practicing the University of Louisville is I did, really didn't have to look too much to see uh, where these people came from or how they were insured. Uh, I, I prefer to practice a medicine where I can can see all the patients I want to. And I think people who like Gene Shively down in Campbellsville, he's done the same thing and whether people liked it very much or not. Um, but but you're right, Mike. I mean, I think that the thing that we have to do better is provide people uh, appropriate education, early access to treatment and care. Uh, and then these preventative services, you know, if you think about that, we've talked about HPV, smoking and alcohol, uh, you know, this is uh, the cancers that I see every day that are advanced, uh, virtually all of them probably could have been prevented. And that's the sad part of this story. You know, our, our concentration on preventative care in a meaningful way, those other developed westernized countries with single payer systems that you talk about, boy, they've done an incredibly effective job of doing that. We always 
seem to say that, well, we're too heterogeneous and too complex in the United States. But, but the fact is that uh, treating cancers that are delayed and late is incredibly expensive, not only in monetary terms, but in human terms. Uh, and I think that, you know, we, we definitely, we can still do a better job uh, at the front end of this to try to prevent more of these types of cancers. Now, I don't know if you remember, there was a surgeon in Louisville um, for many years, a general surgeon who uh, ran for state office uh, and became a, uh, he, in the state legislature. I, 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 I can't remember if he was a, he was a, which, which house he was in. I think Gene, Gene Talbot. But anyhow, he came to the Louisville Surgical Society uh, this is probably 10 years ago, maybe longer, uh, and gave a really good talk about uh, all the issues dealing with politicians and making policy. And and he he just straight out said that the, the politicians don't understand health care. They're mm -hmm. led around by lobbyists. And 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 that's one of the reasons this country is in such a mess. So you know, dealing with that issue is going to is is really um, uh, going to be a challenge because the for-profit health insurance companies have got huge amounts of money, and then they have a huge financial interest in maintaining the status quo. So, having said that, let me push you again into a bit of a corner. If you <laughs> look look just look at where we are today, we've got a new administration. Uh, they are. Uh, uh, proposing to do some improvements on the Affordable Care Act, um, a public option. Uh, as a group, I think we feel that uh, Medicare for all would be a much better uh, option for the country. Um, I think realistically, both Gene and I feel that as much as this would uh, ideologically be the best thing to do, uh, from a reality standpoint, th that ain't something that's going to happen anytime soon. And it took um, it took uh, Japan almost 10 years to to evolve from a system like ours to the universal health care system they've got today. So, uh, you know, just without getting you into a, a political place you don't want to be, any thoughts about uh, the public option versus uh, Medicare for all, and, and the likelihood of one or either of these getting done anytime soon. Well, you know, I, I agree. I feel like we've been talking about it for so long. When I was back at Paducah Tillman High School in the late 70s, I was on the debate team, and we were in the debate, national debate topic of the year that I was a senior in high school uh, was nationalized health care. And that, uh, that kind of streams back to the Carter administration, et cetera. So, you know, obviously we've been talking about uh, the inadequacies we have. You know, the sad point in this, though, Mike, is that if we have access to all uh, is, I believe, my own, again, these are my personal convictions. If we develop a better access system, whether it's through expansion of Obamacare or Medicare in a rational way, that's going to cost the country less and it's going to improve the quality of life of Americans. 
uh, you know, half of our problem has been, you know, who can see somebody who will see somebody who won't see somebody who's incentivized to see somebody. Uh, so it's created this wonky imbalance in American healthcare. Uh, so I, I do agree with you there. And, and you know, you, you have people kind of get down to is healthcare right or not. You know, I think in, in a modern society, yeah, it is, you know, and that's, that's kind of my opinion, you know, in a country as great and as, as wealthy and as successful and quite frankly, you know, even though we've kind of gone through really trials and tribulations in this last year, we, we ought to be able to do that. We ought to be able to accomplish that. And, and I think countries like Japan, uh, Great Britain, Canada, uh, although their transitions haven't been perfect, one of the things they've done is they've tried to make data-driven decisions and they're not caught up so much in special interests, not caught up so much in emotional arguments. Uh, so they've, made, they've tried to make healthcare decisions that are based on that. Now, sometimes they get criticized for being callous, but ultimately the, at the end of the day, if you look at health outcomes in those countries, they're far better than our health outcomes. And the, the bang they get for their buck out of a health dollar is far better than what we've been getting in the United States. So, you know, we can't sit on our laurels and say that we've got something that's working well. I mean, I think we have a lot of technology. We have a lot of advance. We have a lot of study. We know about the sophistication of American medicine. But are we successfully applying what we have across our population? I think we're coming short there. Well, back in uh, about a year or so ago, when uh, when I showed up at the uh, the downtown library to go to one of these Kentucky single payer meetings, and I saw Gene Shively wandering around in the <laughs> ground floor of the library, he took us up. He's got he's got some really good data about the economic benefits of doing something like this as opposed to the way it is today so that there's a whole lot of money gene you want to comment on this that's available just be, be the money that's in healthcare that's not being used to provide health care well we spend about 18 percent of our gnp on health care that's about 3.6 b uh trillion dollars and about 1.2 trillion uh, these are obviously gross estimates of uh, that is wasted. And, and by wasted, I mean, um, we're the only country in the world that advertises. Uh, we've got a huge uh, expense in administrative charges. Uh, we spend a huge amount of money in defensive medicine. Uh, we waste a lot of money in for-profit insurance. And it goes on and on and on. And so... I, I, we can do better and we can do better even uh, regardless of the system we choose to adopt uh, in the future because we can save about a third of the amount of money. The problem is there are a lot of people getting very wealthy um, on, yep. on sick folks and um, people other than doctors and, and nurses. And, and so uh, we can do it. We've just got to have the will to do it. Let me ask you one other question. Has Medicaid expansion affected uh, uh, the ENT program at the University of Louisville? 
Well, I think it, it, what I would say with that, um, Gene, is it's just been a moving target. You know, we went into Medicaid expansion and then kind of that got halted and now we're back at it to some degree. One of the things that the, the problems, it, I love the idea of expanded access. I think that's great, getting people to be able to choose their doctor, get in to see their doctor and get earlier health care. That's a great, that's a laudable thing. The, the, the thing about it that is troublesome, though, is that they all tend to be uh, contracted or run by various healthcare entities throughout the community. And there are different rules and regulations for every Medicaid patient. So the administrative complexities, complications and difficulties uh, have magnified uh, because you're not really dealing with one Medicaid, you're dealing with 12 Medicaids or 13 Medicaids, you know, depending on, on how many are approved in any given state. So, so, you know, that's where the problem goes when you take a governmental program and kind of outsource it to a private interest. If you don't establish some um, at least standardization and ground rules. And so we, we no longer have one Medicaid system. We have about 12 or 13. Uh, that, that can make it extremely difficult uh, by hiring extra people to stay on the phone all day long, getting pre-authorization and uh, getting a test ordered and getting a surgery and procedures ordered. Uh, how, how much of, of your office's time is wasted on that? You know, it, it's, it is a lot more than I would ever anticipate, and even physician time. And, and, you know, you and Mike will recall, you know, there was a point in time where it seemed like the doctor was having to get on the phone a lot for pre-authorization in which they would have to talk with an expert about their care or their operation on a given individual. And then that went away. You know, we did a bunch of that kind of in the early 80s and uh, mid 80s, and then that went away for a while. Well, it's back again. So there are a lot of administrative hoops that uh, that we have to go through kind of justifying our health care, even though everything is kind of well apportioned. Most of it's in an electronic medical record. And and, you know, there are in and frankly, the problem is, is we don't always understand what the ground rules for reviewing a case or not reviewing a case are. I think it, it, most physicians are pretty smart folks. So if they knew. Uh, you know, knew what was coming down the pike, if they knew what was, you know, what companies were interested in reviewing, we'd probably get that job done at the front side and they would never have to talk with us. So, you know, the moving target with all this pre-authorization is what becomes difficult too. But you're right. I think that's an enormous waste. I can tell you <laughs> anecdotally over the time I've practiced, Every time I've had to go in to do a pre-authorization for a patient of mine on a case or on an imaging study or anything else, it's always been approved. Now, that's generally meant me sitting on the phone, not seeing patients, not doing anything really productive for anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, uh, just waiting to talk to somebody. And there's never been a case where they've denied it. They've virtually, after having talked with the physician, approved it 100% of the time. So it, it makes you wonder what's the value of all this, uh, all the machinations that we're going through. And like you said, there there seems to me to be inherent expense and waste there. You know, Jeff, how much, uh, go ahead. How, how much time does uh, the electronic medical records uh, waste? 
Oh boy, you know, I, I've gone, I've had a love-hate relationship with it, Gene. I think in some ways, I don't think uh, EMRs are inherently evil. I think they can be designed to to work well. My my kind of uh, learning curve is how to continue to have foster a good doctor-patient relationship. I actually, spend my time talking to, to my patient and spend my time with my patient rather than uh, clicking on a mouse or or looking at a computer screen. Um, so, you know, I, the, I think the biggest downside and sad side of the EMR is that it has been a challenge to having an appropriate and good doctor-patient relationship. And as you're aware, there, there may not be much more that we do that's important. You know, you've lived in a rural community where those people trust you because they know if they walked in your office, you're going to sit down and listen to them for a while. And you're going to talk to them and you're going to try to help solve their problem. And you probably understood a lot about them when they before they even walked through the door. Uh, but the EMR, it does put pressure on physicians. We need to make it better and we need, we need to make sure whatever form it takes doesn't take away from the doctor-patient relationship. Jeff, I don't know if you remember uh, Ted Young. Ted was the president of the Society of Head and Neck Surgeons the year before me. And oh, yeah. after a couple of years, it, it amalgamated with the American Society and then became the American Head and Neck Society. We had Ted on uh, probably back in the spring. And we talked about these some of these issues, uh, you know, pre-authorizations of an imaging study or and and the the issue of 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 billing and and it it, it he it really it's so much easier to practice in Canada under their current system. Um, they he had I think he had one person in his office doing the billing, and they yeah. sent the bill to one place, the government, and two or three weeks later, you got the money. Whereas right. in this country, you've got what you got a thousand for-profit insurance companies plus Medicare and Medicaid. Each one of these insurance companies have got twenty-five or thirty plans. It's insane, and you have to go through all these administrative hoops to try to get to try to get paid, and then you don't get paid for six or eight weeks anyway. So there really are. There's a whole lot of very basic financial and administrative and functional reasons to, to improve the system. We're getting down to the end of the lollipop here. I just want to let you know, I think we've got about four. Uh, <laughs> according to Mark, we got three minutes. We've got, <laughs> got three minutes left. Let me, I, I you were doing um, uh, some screening things down at the state fair, I, I guess before, yep. before all the pandemics. You know, we know that, uh, that the incidents and the and the death rates from uh, uh, from breast cancers going decreasing, uh, probably largely because of the availability of of screening mammography, and similarly with colon cancer, the uh, either doing colonoscopies or doing the Cologuard thing that manage you know was recognizing the DNA and. The, what kind of activities are going on, again, getting short to the end of the lollipop here, from a screening standpoint, either at the State Fair or any other any other places around uh, Louisville or Kentucky? 
Well, we've done the thing we've done at the state fair. I've been proud of is as part of Oral Cancer Awareness Week, and this was actually uh, you'd you'd be proud of it too, Mike. Is the the Head and Neck Society, which is now American Head and Neck Society, that combined society you were talking about when that, as I recall, you were president and Charlie Cummings were president to get to get those two groups together, but they do a Oral Cancer Awareness Week that supports. Uh, uh, the uh, ability to do screenings of the oral cavity, particularly in smokers across the country and even internationally. They're even offering grants to help do that in disenfranchised communities. So, or communities that may not have the ability to, to have as much access. So, you know, I think it is important, you know, not only just kind of looking in folks' mouths and things like that, but also getting the word out about tobacco uh, addiction and, and options of kind of getting off of it and, and getting the, the information out there that communities need about HPV and things like that. So when we have those events, it allows us to do some education too, which might be actually more important than the screening in some ways. Well, Jeff, listen, I, I just want to thank you. This has been very informative. Uh, we've had a good time talking with you. We, we're, we're at the end of the road. I hope we didn't take up too much of your time in the middle of the day. But thanks again. It's great. Not uh, at all. Not Mike. It's my, Mike and James, my pleasure. I, I, I've enjoyed your friendship for years and respect, respect you greatly. And I think what you're doing is a great thing. Thank you very much for being here. Okay. You guys have a great day. Okay. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Bye. Good deal. Thank you. And for folks who want to learn more about single-payer radio and Kentuckians for single-payer health care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org, and to contact our chairperson, Kay Tillo, you can go to nursenpo at aol.com. That's nursenpo at aol.com. Kay can uh, share with you how you can get involved with the group and learn more about the movement. Mike, Gene, thanks again. Uh, Y'all have a happy Valentine's Day now. Why, well, you do the same. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>